following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning, I'm Karen, and today we will be reading from Two Kings, two lines one through twelve. Elijah ascends to heaven. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, the company of the prophets who were at Jericho, drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord, that today that the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, be silent. And Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent to me to, to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. When Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you. Before I am taken from you, Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, I will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. Elijah ascended into the whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Good morning. My name is Chris, she, her pronouns, and I'm going to be reading our gospel reading. <laughs> it can be found in Mark chapter 9. Uh, verses 2 through 9, and it's on pages 820 and 821 in the Red Bibles. The title of this section is called The Transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up um, up a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, 
It is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, and they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down to the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Good morning. So this is the kind of a thing where it's new and it's exciting. And my wife asked, are you scared? And I said, no, I taught middle school. Um, if we ha- have not met, or if I'm talking to this camera right here and saying hello to you on Zoom, and you've never seen Scott Austin stand next to me, I am the same height as him. <laughs> <laughs> there are other things as well, as we get in uh, more seriously to today's topic, a little, little event, the Transfiguration. Um, is my first topic to kind of explore with you all. But I just wanted to just acknowledge something that um, for my family, as we kind of consider this next step and where we may be going, uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that in this congregation, um, this is a very special place to me and my family. And I, I don't know how you were feeling, but maybe you're feeling like you didn't want there to be change or you wanted that change to go as smoothly as possible, and I hope, I hope that's what will happen, and I hope that's what you will experience. Um, I'm still Jay from the Red Seats, <laughs> and uh, I'm still very much looking forward to talking with you afterwards. Um, as, I, as I go forward in this process, um, my family, they're a little nervous about certain things, but they're very supportive, and if you don't know my family, my wife is Natasha, I have three kids, Jace in high school, May in middle school, and Cohen, who I'm sure you know. (laughs) Uh, And so um, with with that in mind, I guess I'll get started. The topic today is uh, from the mountaintop, embracing mystery. So I have a question for you, because that's usually a good way to start this, right? My question is, have you ever heard a story that was so good that it forced your faith to either grow or weaken. You were at some sort of intersection, and you had to make a choice what was going to happen next. Well, I wanted to tell you about an encounter I had with a man about 10 years ago when I was in the middle of seminary. I met this man named Han, and I had driven down into Gowanda uh, to to meet him. Uh, He was a contact that my pastor had arranged for me to meet with because I was working on a novel about a missionary in North Korea. Um, Han had been born in what was not yet North Korea, and he and his brother and his mother escaped North Korea just before the Korean War. Um, And his story that he told is one where he and his younger brother were awoke in the night by their mother who came into their room and said, get up, we're leaving. Uh, as, he re- as he recounts the story, he says, 
My mother just said that someone named Jesus, who she did not know, in a dream had appeared to her and said, you need to wake up, you need to pack, and we're leaving. And they left in the middle of the night. They packed their photo album, they packed some food, and they started toward the port. And at the port, they found one of the last U.S. naval ships that eventually took them to South Korea. While they were there, um, this experience would uh, stay with them. This person named Jesus, who they did not know yet, would have some sort of role in their life. And so I like to picture them kind of waking up in the middle of the night, sleepy, not really knowing where they were going. And this story just develops even more because um, while they were in South Korea shortly, they went to a Presbyterian church, and Han became deeply moved in his own faith to the point where he became a Presbyterian minister. And so he resettled in Gowanda, and he raised his family there, he got married there, and he was a pastor there for several decades. And as I met him in this particular uh, international establishment, Tim Hortons, <laughs> oh, you've heard of it. <laughs> um, we, we talked for something like two hours that felt like ten minutes, and he just kept sharing this story that was so otherworldly to me, to the point where I was wondering, is this real? Can this really be true? That this singular story uh, that he has shared with me, um, what do I do with this? And so this past week, in preparation with all these readings around the transfiguration and the story about Elijah and Elijah that you just heard, it's got me thinking about stories. It's got me thinking, what happens to a story when you're the only one that witnesses what happens? This is a story that is very small in uh, people who were there uh, in, Han's in Han's case. Is it less true or is it less powerful? Does it rotate into an on-loan collection of fables? Does it harden and become something more spectacular? Does it wither? Is this story possible, or is it a bit too perfect? Isn't it a bit too much like what we might call a Bible story? When I was a seminary student, um, we lived in a small apartment, and when everyone would go to sleep, I would stay up till midnight or later to work on papers. And I often turned our bathroom bathtub into my makeshift study area. So I would put a couple pillows in there and a blanket, sit there, put a piece of wood across, put my laptop there, or read books there. And, I, you know, those are hard things to read at that, that point of the, of the day. So, City of God, or Snacking on the Light Ramblings of Thomas Aquinas, that's a challenge. <laughs> but that's what I did, and that whole time when I was studying to be maybe a pastor someday, um, I was just enamored with stories. And stories are always, for me, where... Um, I'm drawn into scripture and uh, just encountering God. So this week, the lectionary readings, they focus on the theme of promises, uh, the covenant that stretches back between the Lord and Israel for millennia, and of course from which our, our church springs forth as well. 
And this week's readings, they had the same kind of can-you-believe-this feature that characterizes the story that I just shared from Han. And it's got me thinking even more. Does the story turn more true when more people know it? Is it more real? Or does it weaken through some sort of spectacular stream of person-to-person naming, like in a kid's game of telephone? All the readings today, they do a similar thing. Psalm 50, 2 Kings 2, the Gospel reading from Mark 9, they all testify to the fact that as hard as God tries to make the length and depth and breadth of his love known to us, we are always contrarian in some form, and we always flippantly say, yeah, but. And that's why some astute readers, when you were listening today, or when you were just listening to the words, you might have faintly heard the Judge Judy theme playing in the background, as God takes the role of the judge presiding over the entire universe. It's supposed to be theatrical. The, the, the opening psalm that we heard, it's supposed to be something where the world is on blast. And so maybe um, for some of us that disarms us or we're a little pushed back by that because it's hard to think of God just as a judge. And that's really where, uh, for me today, uh, I want to hang with you on this idea of mystery. Because very, very quickly, the psalmist proclaims in verse 3 that our God does not keep silence Before him is a devouring fire and a mighty tempest all around him. That seems hard to get close to. But the point is that we are being called back to the task of trying to uphold our end of the covenant, of trying to be close to God. And our yeah buts, they always get in the way. And that's why God sent his only son. It is the same love story that's told from a new perspective over and over, the love of God, not knowing any boundary, not being able to be contained. He is jealous for us and capable of transforming us through any innumerable combination of his names. He is not just a judge. He is a creator, a cloud, a judge, a redeemer, a refuge. But Jesus funnels all of this into one name, Abba, Deb. And so the unspeakable Alpha and Omega becomes dead. Is it any wonder that many of us over time lose our way and that we end up becoming a little bit too familiar in this relationship where we end up praying the Janet Jackson prayer? What have you done for me lately? (laughs) Aren't many of us proverbially and metaphorically stealing money from dad's wallet and looking for what is beyond his home. What else do you have for me? That's part of being a good dad, maybe, living in that certain amount of anonymity. And as much as we love a good mystery, we love a good ending even more. In fact, a good mystery with a horrible ending is prone to draw out the worst of us. And maybe it reveals the things inside of us that we don't want to see. We always want to have a top-down view of thinking that we understand things and that we're in some sort of control. But we, like Wesley from The Princess Bride, understand that we are humans of action. And the tidy endings, for most of us, they've gone out the window long, long ago. So maybe 
we've had ruptured relationships. Or maybe we've had eras, just like Taylor, where deep hurts have left us skeptical of something like Elijah getting hauled up in the sky by horses in a chariot of heaven with only one person to witness it. Or maybe our own disbelief stem from our inability to properly have closure on the stories that make us feel all squirmy inside. And this applies, too, when we think of the gospel reading with Moses and Elijah suddenly appearing out of Jesus' coat. In my heart, even when we have questions, I wonder, what do we even want? What do we even want from these stories? And luckily for us, we have this week a reporter in the field who was covering the event, this transfiguration, and it's Peter. And thank God it is Peter and not Paul. Because personally, the idea of Paul trying to describe something as abstract and complicated as the transfiguration, we would all be worse for it. (laughs) You know, in this uh, particular gospel reading, when... um, we just, that we just heard, there's this kind of connection with Psalm 50, this, this reverence, this kind of striking of fear in the Lord. Um, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. Second time, right? This is the second time after the baptism. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Isn't it interesting that in these encounters where God's voice breaks through the clouds, this is all you get. This is all we understand. Sometimes it makes, it makes me wonder why it's an echo, why it's the same kind of idea. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. You could drive to work all week just saying that over and over again and find new things almost every day. But it makes me wonder. Um, Some of you know that my other job is working with international students, and I'm always thinking about different languages. And I wonder if you remember when you were in high school and you had to, to learn maybe a language like French or Spanish. And I wonder how long it's been since you used that. <laughs> and if you went into another country and somebody said a real thing to you, what would you pick up? Well, maybe that broken French or Spanish is kind of what it's like, trying to understand God's voice. And maybe there's some parallel there, and that we keep our words short to best be able to understand something close to what God is trying to say. So I'm wondering, will this test, will we test this mystery more because there were few witnesses. Is our ability to hear God only for a few? What if we're not really ready for inner circle kind of work? And this brings me to the core text this week. As great as the Transfiguration text is, I couldn't get over the story about Elijah and Elijah. And this mother, or this, excuse me, this father-son kind of relationship that they have. So moments before Elijah is taken up by God into heaven, he asks his apprentice, his protege, Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. You just heard. They were on this walking tour 
all around. And, well, everybody kind of knew that Elisha apparently was about to be lifted up. And what does Elisha, the apprentice, answer? Well, like a son, he tells his father, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. I feel like that's what Cohen does every week because he wants to buy more Pokemon cards. <laughs> please allow me to have a double uh, portion so that I may go and buy all the Pokemon cards of the world. But to me, Elijah, he's sensing God's proximity, his nearness, and he tells his protege the only thing that he can. You can have that double portion, you can have the blessing when you're willing to do the thing alone, when you're willing to tell the story on your own. And that's a wait. And that's a wait for all of us still today. If Elijah wants his double portion blessing, he's going to need to reconcile the mystery within himself. And he's going to have to deal with a spectacle, which is both terrifying and amazing. I've seen his mentor, his father figure, be lifted away into the clouds. Likewise, how should any of us expect to experience or feel nearness to God when we're so often the contractors who are building mountains of our own, and that mountains like white lies can be built one stone at a time? Some things will remain a mystery that doesn't mean that we have to stop living out our questions. I think you might hear me say this quote over and over again, but it's just one I love. The German poet uh, Rilke says that we need to live in our questions. You live through your questions, but I'll do you one better. I don't have all answers for you about the questions that we all have, but I do like to ask questions. And I think we need to go further than just living in our questions, which can be a kind of entrapment. I think we need to lean through them until at least they lead us to new questions, to better questions. In 2009, just after Jace was born, uh, Tasha and I started a fast, and it was the most meaningful fast. Have you heard of a Daniel fast, that kind of uh, really strict diet? Well, my middle name is Daniel, but my middle name is not Fast. <laughs> it was really hard for me, and I, it was not a good uh, kind of encounter initially where I felt holy in any way. Mostly I was a miserable human being because I love to eat and I love food. And I was hungry all the time and grumbling, and it wasn't anything that I would want people to, to think of me. Well, that's Jay Newman. Uh, but somewhere along the way, I, I realized that even... The hardest things that I had to say or the hardest things that I had to feel, that they were somehow being recorded as a kind of prayer. And I know that's a kind of abstract thing to kind of understand. But that year, just like Han's mother, I had dreams. I had lots of dreams. I call them a double batch of dreams. I had about 40, 24 of these dreams that um, I felt like as I was praying closer and closer to God, he was talking to me in pictures. If you don't know, I'm a poet, and you're just going to have to roll with that kind of thing. But I want to tell you about three of the dreams, um, and maybe they'll speak to you in some way. And I want to encourage you to, to wonder if in your own dreams God is maybe speaking to you. In the first dream, 
I was in a lecture hall, and there were these equations that were unsolvable up on a, on a kind of chalkboard. Really intense looking mathematical equations that I couldn't even begin to tell you what to do with them. But somebody walked into the room and solved all the equations on the board, kind of like in Goodwill Hunting, right? <laughs> three, three, three. I just kept writing three on the board, and that was the answer to all the questions. I've since tried that for my kids' math homework, and it does not work. <clears throat> Maybe one day. <clears throat> the second dream that I had, Tasha and I were driving west, and we got lost. And so she sat in, or excuse me, I sat in the car sulking, and she stepped out of the car and was talking to someone for directions. I couldn't see the person's face because I was sitting in the car sulking, but the other the other person was wearing, you know, the denim, um, the denim kind of jumpsuit, and was giving directions to Tasha. And when we got, when she went back in the car with me, I realized we started driving away. I realized that she had just spoken to God, and that um, maybe she knew something that I didn't know. And sometimes I think that that was that you should consider going to seminary. The last dream is the one that I, I kind of want to finish on. This third dream occurred in a cave. Um, have you ever gone splunking? Do you know what that is? <laughs> so we went to school in south central Kentucky, and there wasn't always a lot to do there. There were no real lakes. There were man-made lakes. But there were these caves that uh, some of our friends in Kentucky would take us to, where you had to literally crawl or like do the duck waddle to get all the way into these interior areas where you could see carved out areas underneath. Well, in one of my dreams, the one that maybe speaks the most directly to me, in one of my dreams I had this kind of sensation that we were in this line. Um, and since I was in my mid-30s, I've had some, some back issues where um, if, you've, if you've had back pain, you know it's debilitating. Um, well, in my dream, my back feels like it's about to snap, and I'm still in this posture of prayer for forever. We're in this long line, right? And everyone is trying to get closer and closer to the front. And when I'm just on the doorstep, when I'm literally in the waiting room of whatever this space is, whatever it means to me, um, I stand up. I'm not going to do this. I stand up and I walk out. And immediately as I stand up, I feel something like the most intense grief that I could ever explain to you or ever try to describe. Sometimes, even now, 15 years later, these dreams come back to me as pictures where God says the thing uh, through a dream. And I'm reminded how they are my stories. They are the stories that God has somehow articulated to me. When we allow mystery to surround us and trust that our doubt won't overpower our desire to be close to God, then our mountaintop experience, it can happen at any time and in any place. We might discover that God is like a whisper. We might discover that day, he's a devouring fire. We might discover that God has been with us all the time, locked in our own mountain, 
calling for our best and getting something like my Daniel fast. And so, in the earnest belief, we can find our place on the mountaintop and recognize that Elijah and Moses, they won't be there, but Jesus will. Thank you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.